Section 7 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison, Portland, Maine. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Section L. Representations Concerning Executive Clemency Only the President of the United States can grant executive clemency in a manner involving a federal crime. The evidence reveals that during the latter part of 1972 and in early January 1973, prior to the first Watergate trial, promises of executive clemency were made to certain Watergate defendants in a further effort to maintain their silence. These promises of executive clemency were made with the representation that they were authorized by high officials close to the president. Ehrlichman testified that he discussed executive clemency with the president as early as July 1972. According to Ehrlichman, the president did not even want members of the White House staff to discuss clemency with anyone involved in the case, much less to offer it. The president, in a statement on August 15, 1973, confirmed Ehrlichman's statement that he told Ehrlichman in July that under no circumstances could executive clemency be considered for participants in the Watergate affair. Subsection 1. Representations to James McCord. McCord testified that in late September or early October 1972, Gerald Alch, his attorney, met with William Bittman, who represented Hunt, after this meeting, McCord said, Alch told McCord that executive clemency, financial support, and rehabilitation would be made available to the Watergate defendants. Alch denied in his testimony before the committee that he transmitted these assurances of executive clemency to McCord. To the contrary, he testified, he told McCord, Jim, it can be Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. But in my opinion, the president would not touch this with a 10-foot pole. So do not rely on any prospect of executive clemency. McCord testified Hunt also told him that executive clemency would be granted and, quote, spoke in terms as though it had already been committed, unquote. Mr. McCord said these assurances from Hunt were made in late September or October while Hunt and McCord were at the courthouse. McCord stated that discussions involving executive clemency also occurred with Hunt's wife and that from September to December, Mrs. Hunt pressured McCord to remain silent and accept a proposal for executive clemency, which he declined. McCord was told that similar proposals were made to Barker, Gonzalez, Martinez, Sturgis, and Liddy. More direct promises of executive clemency came to McCord after he sent an anonymous letter on December 31 to Jack Caulfield, which dramatically warned that, quote, if Helms goes and if the Watergate operation is laid at the CIA's feet where it does not belong, every tree in the forest will fall. It will be a scorched desert. The whole matter is at the precipice now. Just pass the message that if they want it to blow, they are on exactly the right course. I'm sorry that you will get hurt in the fallout. Unquote. McCord had become increasingly alarmed over what he considered efforts by his attorney and persons at CRP and the White House to have him falsely assert 
as a defense to the criminal charges against him that the break-in was part of a CIA mission. Caulfield, who believed the letter came from McCord, immediately telephoned its contents to Dean's assistant, Fred Fielding, and later gave the letter to Dean. Dean discussed the problem with Paul O'Brien. O'Brien reported the matter to Mitchell, who directed O'Brien to have Caulfield determine McCord's intentions. On January 8, 1973, Dean asked O'Brien to communicate to McCord's lawyer that a friend of McCord's would contact McCord, which O'Brien did. O'Brien also told Hunt's lawyer, Bittman, about the conversation with Dean. Later that day, McCord and Alch visited Bittman's office, and after Alch met with Bittman alone, Alch told McCord that he would receive a call that evening from a White House, quote, friend, unquote. The initial contact with McCord was made by Caulfield through Tony Ulasowicz, who telephoned McCord in the early morning hours of January 9, 1973, and told him to go to a nearby phone booth to receive a message. McCord complied and heard a voice, unfamiliar to him, say, quote, Plead guilty. One year is a long time. You will get executive clemency. Your family will be taken care of, and when you get out, you will be rehabilitated and a job will be found for you. Don't take immunity when called before the grand jury. After delivering the message, Ulasowicz reported McCord's apparent satisfaction to Caulfield. In the meantime, according to Dean, O'Brien and Mitchell both contacted Dean and told him that since Hunt had received an assurance of executive clemency, discussed below, McCord and the others were similarly entitled. Mitchell and O'Brien felt Caulfield could most effectively carry that message to McCord. Dean testified that he called Caulfield, told him to see McCord in person, and gave him a clemency message for McCord similar to the one transmitted to Hunt through Bittman. Mitchell's testimony before the committee indicated he knew in January 1973 that Dean asked Caulfield to talk to McCord to ascertain McCord's plans, but Mitchell does not remember contemporaneously learning that Caulfield had offered McCord clemency. Caulfield arranged a meeting with McCord on the George Washington Parkway in Virginia, the first of several, through another telephone call from Ulasowicz to McCord at the telephone booth near McCord's home. This meeting took place on January 12. McCord testified that Caulfield then urged him to plead guilty, receive clemency, and be rehabilitated afterward. According to McCord, Caulfield said that he carried the clemency message, quote, from the very highest levels of the White House, unquote. McCord said he was told by Caulfield that the president would be apprised at the next meeting and that Caulfield said, quote, I may have a message to you at our next meeting from the president himself, unquote. Caulfield testified that on January 13, Dean advised him to stress to McCord the sincerity of the clemency offer. When Caulfield asked if the offer came from the president, Dean replied it came, quote, from the top, unquote. Caulfield said that he assumed this implied Ehrlichman speaking for the president because Dean rarely made decisions without Ehrlichman's input. Caulfield, however, never had personal discussions with the president on this matter 
and had no personal knowledge that the President authorized a clemency offer to McCord. On January 14, Caulfield again met with McCord on the George Washington Parkway and told McCord that his efforts to develop, as a defense to the criminal charges against him, his claims of government wiretaps of certain phone calls he had made to foreign embassies would not be successful. McCord became very concerned and was assured that he would receive clemency after 10 or 11 months' imprisonment. Caulfield, on this occasion, told McCord, The President's ability to govern is at stake. Another Teapot Dome scandal is possible, and the government may fall. Everybody else is on track but you. You are not following the game plan. Get closer to your attorney. There followed two telephone conversations on January 15 and January 16, during which McCord indicated to Caulfield that he had no desire to talk to him further and suggested that if the White House wanted to be honest, it should look into McCord's perjury charges against Magruder and his claims as to the tapping of his two embassy calls. However, a final meeting was arranged between McCord and Caulfield on the George Washington Parkway for January 25. McCord testified that at this meeting, Caulfield repeated the offers of clemency, financial support, and rehabilitation. According to McCord, Caulfield discouraged his hopes for White House action on his wiretap defense and cautioned him that if he made public allegations against high administration officials, the administration would undoubtedly defend itself. McCord interpreted this as a, quote, personal threat, unquote, to his safety, but stated his willingness to take the risk. Caulfield testified that in this final meeting, he concluded that McCord was definitely going to speak out on the Watergate burglary and would probably make allegations against White House and other high officials. Caulfield said he told McCord, Jim, I have worked with these people, and I know them to be as tough-minded as you and I. When you make your statement, don't underestimate them. If I were in your shoes, I would probably be doing the same thing. Subsection 2. Representations to Howard Hunt on December 8, 1972, Hunt's wife, Dorothy, died in an airplane crash in Chicago. Three weeks later, on December 31, Hunt sent a letter to Colson that stated, I had understood you to say that you would be willing to see my attorney, Bill Bittman, at any time. After my wife's death, I asked him to see you, but his efforts were unavailing. And though I believe I understand the delicacy of your overt position, I nevertheless feel myself even more isolated than before. My wife's death, the imminent trial, my present mental depression, and my inability to get any relief from my friends on whom I had in good faith relied. I can't tell you how important it is under the circumstances for Bill Bittman to have the opportunity to meet with you and I trust that you will do me that favor. There is a limit to the endurance of any man trapped in a hostile situation, and mine was reached on December 8. I do believe in God, not necessarily a just God, but in governance of a divine being. His will, however, is often enacted through human hands, and human adversaries are arraigned against me. Colson sent Dean a copy of the letter with a note that asked, now, what the hell do I do? 
Dean testified that on January 2, 1973, Paul O'Brien called him and with some urgency requested that Dean meet with him concerning serious problems with Hunt. When Dean met with O'Brien that evening, O'Brien told Dean that Hunt wished to plead guilty, but before changing his plea, Hunt wanted White House assurance of executive clemency. On January 3, Colson called Dean to say that he did not want to meet with Bittman. Dean testified he went to Ehrlichman and told him the situation. Ehrlichman, according to Dean, asked Colson to meet with Bittman, which Colson did. After meeting with Bittman that same day, Colson met with Dean and Ehrlichman in Ehrlichman's office. Dean testified that Colson was upset and said it was imperative to offer Hunt executive clemency. Dean said Ehrlichman indicated he would speak to the president about it and directed Colson not to address the president on the subject. Ehrlichman testified that at this meeting, he told Dean and Colson of his July 1972 conversation with the president, where the president had stressed that no one in the White House was to discuss or offer clemency. The next day, according to Dean, Ehrlichman confided to Dean that he had given Colson an affirmative answer regarding clemency for Hunt and that Colson had again met with Bittman. On January 5, Colson reported his second meeting with Bittman to Ehrlichman and Dean. Colson said he gave Bittman a general assurance respecting clemency rather than a firm commitment saying that although a year is a long time, clemency usually comes around Christmas. Dean said he expressed the feeling that the other defendants would expect the same type of arrangement and that Ehrlichman said the same assurance would apply to all. According to Dean, Colson, after the meeting, told Dean he had ignored Ehrlichman's instructions and discussed clemency with the president. Ehrlichman confirms that in January he met with Colson and Dean to discuss the Hunt-Bittman request for help. Ehrlichman said the main purpose of the meeting was to attempt to deal with Hunt's depressed state of mind and to determine how best to aid him. But, Ehrlichman testified, he made it clear to Colson that under no circumstances could executive clemency be offered Hunt. His version of the January 5 meeting was that Colson gave Dean and Ehrlichman, quote, the strongest kinds of assurances that he had not made any sort of commitment, unquote. However, Hunt did change his plea to guilty at the opening of the trial on January 10. The edited presidential transcripts reveal that the following comments and recollections regarding clemency to Hunt were made at the March 21, 1973 meeting among the President, Haldeman, and Dean before Hunt was sentenced. Dean, here is what is happening right now. What sort of brings matters to the unintelligible? One, this is going to be a continual blackmail operation by Hunt and Liddy and the Cubans. No doubt about it. And McCord, who is another one involved. McCord has asked for nothing. McCord did ask to meet with somebody, with Jack Caulfield, who is his old friend, who had gotten him hired over there. And when Caulfield had him hired, he was a perfectly legitimate security man. And he wanted to talk about commutation and things like that. And as you know, Colson has talked indirectly to Hunt about commutation. All of these things are bad, in that they are problems. They are promises, 
They are commitments. They are the very sort of thing that the Senate is going to be looking most for. I don't think they can find them, frankly. President. Pretty hard. Dean. Pretty hard. Damn hard. It's all cash. President. Pretty hard, I mean, as far as the witnesses are concerned. As a matter of fact, there was a discussion with somebody about Hunt's problem on account of his wife, and I said, of course commutation could be considered on the basis of his wife's death, and that is the only conversation I ever had in that light. Dean. Right. President. You have the problem with Hunt and his clemency. Dean. That's right. And you're going to have a clemency problem with the others. They all are going to expect to be out, and that may put you in a position that is just untenable at some point. You know, the Watergate hearing's just over. Hunt now demanding clemency, or he is going to blow. And politically, it's impossible for you to do it. You know, after everybody. President. That's right. Dean. I am not sure that you will ever be able to deliver on the clemency. It may be just too hot. President. You can't do it politically until after the 74 elections, that's for sure. Your point is that even then you couldn't do it. Dean. That's right. It may further involve you in a way you should not be involved in this. President. No. It is wrong. That's for sure. And the second thing is, we are not going to be able to deliver on any of a clemency thing. You know, Colson has gone around on this clemency thing with Hunt and the rest. Dean. Hunt is now talking about being out by Christmas. Haldeman. This year? Dean. This year. He was told by O'Brien, who is my conveyor of doom back and forth, that hell, he would be lucky if he were out a year from now, or after Irvin's hearings were over. He said how in the Lord's name could you be commuted that quickly. He said, well, that is my commitment from Colson. Haldeman. By Christmas of this year? Dean. Yeah. Haldeman. See, that, really, that is verbal evil. Colson is, that is your fatal flaw in Chuck. He is an operator in expediency, and he will pay at the time and where he is to accomplish whatever he is there to do. And that, and that's, I would believe that he has made that commitment if Hunt says he has. I would believe he is capable of saying that. President. The only thing we could do with him would be to parole him like the unintelligible situation. But you couldn't buy clemency. Another relevant discussion occurred on April 14, 1973, when the president met with Haldeman and Ehrlichman. In a discussion of the possibility of executive clemency, the president said, It's a shame. There could be clemency in this case, and at the proper time, having in mind the extraordinary sentences of Magruder, etc., etc. But you know damn well it is ridiculous to talk about clemency. They all knew that. Colson knew that. I mean, when you, Ehrlichman, talked to Colson and he talked to me... Dean met again with the president on April 15, 1973. By this time, Dean had retained counsel, gone to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and begun to give information about the cover-up. Dean testified he was somewhat shaken when he went to the meeting because he was acting to end the cover-up and knew there would be serious problems for the president. 
Dean said the most interesting event of the meeting came near the very end. He said the president, quote, got up out of his chair, went behind his chair to the corner of the executive office building office, and in a nearly inaudible tone said to me he was probably foolish to have discussed Hunt's clemency with Colson, unquote. It was this conduct that led Dean to believe that this conversation was taped. As the committee learned later, there was, indeed, a taping system in operation. However, the President has informed the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia that, unknown to the President at the time, the recorder's tape had, quote, run out, unquote, just prior to the President's meeting with Dean, and that the meeting was thus not recorded. Subsequently, in an April 16, 1973 meeting, the President and Dean again discussed the subject of executive clemency for Hunt. Dean. All the obstruction is technical stuff that mounts up. President. Well, you take, for example, the clemency bit. That is solely Mitchell, apparently, and Colson's talk with Bittman, where he says he will do everything I can because, as a friend. Dean. No, that was with Ehrlichman. President. Hunt? Dean. That was with Ehrlichman. President. Ehrlichman with whom? Dean. Ehrlichman and Colson and I sat up there. Colson presented his story to Ehrlichman regarding it, and then John gave Chuck very clear instructions on going back and telling him, quote, Give him the inference he's got clemency, but don't give him any commitment. President. No commitment. Dean. Right. President. That's all right. No commitment. I have a right to say here. Take a fellow like Hunt or a Cuban whose wife is sick or something and give them clemency for that purpose. Isn't that right? Dean. That's right. President. But John specifically said no commitment. Did he? Dean. Yes. President. And then Colson went on apparently to Dean. I don't know how Colson delivered it. President. To Hunt's lawyer. Isn't that your understanding? Dean. Yes, but I don't know what he did or how. President. Where did this business of the Christmas thing get out? John? What in the hell is that all about? That must have been Mitchell, huh? Dean. Nope, that was Chuck again. President. That they would all be out by Christmas? Dean. No, I think he said something to the effect that Christmas is the time the clemency generally occurs. President. Oh, yeah. Well... I don't think that is going to hurt him, do you? Dean, no. President, clemency is one thing. He is a friend of Hunt's. I'm just trying to put the best face on it. But if it is the wrong thing to do, I have to know. Subsection 3. Representations to Jeb Magruder. Dean testified that on August 16, 1972, Magruder... Concerned over his upcoming grand jury appearance, asked him, quote, What happens if this whole thing comes tumbling down? Will I get executive clemency? And will my family be taken care of? Unquote. Dean told Magruder that, quote, I am sure you will. Unquote. But Magruder did not consider that statement to be a firm offer of executive clemency. On March 23, 1973, Chief Judge Sirica read aloud the sealed letter received from McCord. As noted, the letter charged that pressure had been exerted on the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent, that perjury had been committed during the Watergate trial, 
and that others than those adjudged guilty had participated in the Watergate operation. McCord indicated his desire to meet with Judge Sirica and elaborate further on his assertions. He stated that he lacked confidence in the FBI, the Department of Justice, and other such, quote, government representatives, unquote, and thus did not want to present his information to them. McCord, however, was willing to speak to representatives of the select committee. McCord's letter caused Magruder concern regarding his previous testimony. On March 25, Magruder presented his situation to CRP lawyers, and they advised him to retain counsel. Magruder testified that the lawyers apparently transmitted his concern to Mitchell because, on March 27, Mitchell phoned Magruder and asked Magruder to meet with him in New York. Magruder flew there that day and told Mitchell his worries, as Magruder recalled it. Mitchell assured him, quote, he would take care of things, that everything would be taken care of, unquote. According to Magruder, quote, everything, unquote, included a guaranteed salary and executive clemency. Mitchell confirmed the meeting with Magruder, as well as Magruder's discussion of the potential perjury charge against him. While Mitchell recalled offering to help Magruder, quote, in any conceivable way, unquote, he denied promising clemency. Mitchell also testified that, in their March 27 meeting, Magruder requested further assurance from someone still in the White House, and Mitchell suggested a meeting with Haldeman. Magruder testified that in January, when he became concerned he might be made a scapegoat, he went to Haldeman and said, quote, I just want you to know that this whole Watergate situation and other activities was a concerted effort by a number of people, and so I went through a literal monologue on what had occurred, unquote. However, Haldeman testified, quote, At no meeting with Magruder did he raise with me a monologue as he has described, unquote. Dean testified that on March 28, Haldeman called him at Camp David and asked him to return to Washington to meet with Mitchell and Magruder. Although Dean resisted, Haldeman persuaded him to participate. Dean said his meeting with Haldeman, Mitchell, and Magruder concerned how Dean planned to testify, if called before an appropriate body, regarding the January 27 and February 4, 1972 meetings in Mitchell's office. Dean said he would not agree to help support the perjured testimony already given by Magruder in this regard. Mitchell testified that at the meeting, Haldeman offered to help Magruder as a friend, but made no other commitments. Magruder recalled that Haldeman was careful to articulate that he, quote, could make no commitments for the president, unquote. Because of Dean's stand and the advice of CRP lawyers, Magruder decided to retain personal counsel. The transcript of an April 14, 1973 meeting among the President, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman indicates the President's view as to how an inference of executive clemency could be given to Magruder in return for his claiming ultimate responsibility, along with Mitchell, for the Watergate affair. President, I would also, though, I'd put a couple of things in and say, Jeb, let me just start here by telling you the President holds great affection for you and your family. I was just thinking last night, this poor kid, Haldeman, yeah, beautiful kids.
president. Lovely wife, and all the rest. It just breaks your heart. And say this. This is a very painful message for me to bring. I've been asked to give you, but I must do it, and it is that. Put it right out that way. Also, I would put that in so he knows I have personal affection. That's the way the so-called clemency's got to be handled. Do you see, John? Ehrlichman, I understand. Haldeman, do the same thing with Mitchell. Subsection 4. Representations to G. Gordon Liddy. The edited presidential transcripts contain a reference to a purported promise by Mitchell of a pardon or clemency to Liddy. The following passage is from the April 14, 1972 meeting among the President, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman. President, he's not talking because he thinks the President doesn't want him to talk. Is that the point? Ehrlichman, he's, according to them, Mitchell's given him a promise of a pardon. President, Bittman? Ehrlichman, according to Colson and Shapiro? President, I don't know where they get that. Mitchell has promised Liddy a pardon? Ehrlichman, yes, sir. On pages 485 through 87, the following colloquy from the same meeting appears. President, Colson to Bittman. I guess that's the only thing we have on that, except Mitchell, apparently had said something about clemency to people. Haldeman, to Liddy. President, and Mitchell has never, never, has he ever discussed clemency with you? Ehrlichman, no. President, has he ever discussed it with you? Haldeman, nope. President, unintelligible. We were all here in the room. Haldeman, well, may have said, look, we've got to take care of this. President, but he's never said, look, you're going to get a pardon from these people when this is over. Never used any such language around here, has he, John? Ehrlichman, not to me. Haldeman, I don't think so. President, with Dean, has he? Ehrlichman, well, I don't know. That's a question I can't answer. President, well, but Dean's never raised it. In fact, Dean told me when he talked about Hunt, I said, John, where does it all lead? I said, what's it going to cost? You can't just continue this way. He said, about a million dollars. Unintelligible. I said, John, that's the point unintelligible. Unless I could get them up and say, look, fellas, it's too bad, and I give you executive clemency like tomorrow. What the hell do you think, Dean? President, I mean, you think the point is, Hunt and the Cubans are not going to sit in jail for four years, and they are not being taken care of. Haldeman, that's the point. Now where are you going to get the money for that? President, that's the reason this whole thing falls apart. It's that, it's that, that astonishes me about Mitchell and the rest. Ehrlichman, big problem. Material unrelated to presidential actions deleted here. President, the word never came up, but I said, I appreciate what you're doing. I knew it was for the purpose of helping the poor bastards through the trial, but you can't offer that, John. You can't, or could you? I guess you could. Attorney's fees? Could you go a support program for these people for four years? Ehrlichman, I haven't any idea. I have no idea. Subsection 5. Consideration of Clemency for Dean and Mitchell. 
Comments by the President at an April 14, 1973 meeting with Ehrlichman indicated he considered executive clemency for Dean and Mitchell in return for Dean's and Mitchell's cooperation in the Watergate affair. President. One point. You are going to talk to Dean? Ehrlichman. I am. President. What are you going to say to him? Ehrlichman. Well, to get off this passing the buck business. President. John, that's... Ehrlichman. It is a little touchy, and I don't know how far I can go. President. John, that is not going to help you. Look, he, Dean, has to look down the road to one point. There is only one man who could restore him to the ability to practice law in case things go wrong. He's got to have that in the back of his mind. Ehrlichman, uh-huh. President, he's got to know that will happen. You don't tell him, but you know and I know that with him and Mitchell, there isn't going to be any damn question because they got a bad rap. End of Section 7